0: A few years ago, a newspaper down in Southern California did a series of investigative articles on restaurants in Southern California, and they investigated a number of seafood restaurants in Southern California. They found that in seafood restaurants, in particular uh, one neighborhood, there was a number of restaurants that were of a number of different styles. There might be one restaurant, one seafood restaurant, and you would go in there and one entree was a la carte, entree ordering. One entree might be 15 or $20, and you'd have to, of course, order your side dishes and your drinks and whatnot. Then the restaurant right down the road, you could order the same entree as a part of a meal, and the entire cost of the entire meal was less than the one entree at the restaurant, just right up the road. And you know what they discovered when they investigated these two restaurants? They get their food from the same place. Their supplier was identical. They were the... Not just similar meals, they were the same meals. At one restaurant, it was three or four times the cost of the restaurant right down the road. And of course, what's the difference? The difference was the ambiance and the atmosphere and, and, and the way the place was laid out and the decorations. One was sort of a storefront just with some folding tables set up and so you get your food at a lower cost. Another restaurant was very nice with all kinds of expensive and impressive uh, decorations. But people wanted a fancier experience and so they're willing to pay more for the exactly the same food. One has a better experience, a better ambiance, better lighting, maybe better music, I don't know. And so people are willing to pay more for an experience. I think this is true for all of us, isn't it? I mean, we want to have experiences that move us and shape us and, and strengthen us. And, and we, we plan vacations and we uh, plan experiences and, and, and we look for ways to be encouraged and lifted up and rest and relax and And we're willing to pay more to have experiences that move us, have things that affect us. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. But what we're going to discover this morning as we look at chapters 3 and 4 of 1 Samuel, when it comes to our relationship with God, oftentimes He's not speaking primarily through those moving and powerful experiences. In, in, In 1 Samuel 3 and 4, we discover God speaks to the lowly. God speaks to the lowly, and we want to understand how this works, because it's critically important as we understand how God is working. What should we expect in our relationship with God? How should we expect Him to be working in our lives? And we're going to look this morning at how God speaks to the lowly. Now, I know I read from 1 Samuel chapter 3. It's one of your favorite stories in the book of Samuel, right? You've all heard that story when you were in Sunday school. You probably know the flannel graphs. I should have a giant flannel graph installed, right? But we're going to actually start in chapter 4. We'll get back to Samuel in chapter 3 and Eli's trouble sleeping. But we're going to look first at chapter 4. God speaks lowly. What has happened in the life of Israel is, is all of a sudden they're being tormented by a group of people called the Philistines. And the Philistines are on the, the coast. And they're a marine people. But the Philistines were highly advanced militarily they were far superior to Israel in their military and the Philistines were tormenting Israel and and we discover here in 1 Samuel chapter 4 the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines and they got their heinies kicked that's a technical military term of course thousands of people died the Philistines were victorious over the Israelites and uh, they were they were distraught they were they were concerned they were going to continue invading and continue fighting them and what's going to happen so the the Philistines Uh, We're setting up again to fight against the Israelites, the people of God, the people of Israel. And the Israelites had this bright idea let's bring out the Ark of the Covenant. Let's bring out the Ark of the Covenant. You remember the Ark of the Covenant, right? After the people of Israel left the land of Egypt, while they were in the wilderness, God gave plans to Moses for the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle. And the Ark of the Covenant was a box, essentially. It was a really expensive box. It was completely covered with gold inside and out. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant, there was uh, the cherubim—these angels with these long wings touching in the middle—and they had poles going into the Ark of the Covenant uh, that were they carried the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders. How often were the poles removed from the Ark of the Covenant? Never. The poles were to never be removed from their spots. And they were these long gold-covered poles. And it was a beautiful box. A beautiful. Uh, significant part of the history of the Jewish people. Remember, when they invaded the promised land and they marched around Jericho. You remember that? They marched around Jericho. What was at the very front of the army of the Lord marching? The priests and the Ark of the Covenant. And they marched around it seven days, uh, thir- seven times on the seventh day. And what happened? The walls came down. The, the Ark of the Covenant was the powerful a symbol of the presence of God. At night in the tabernacle, they could look at the tabernacle and in the Holy of Holies where the, tab- where, the, where the Ark of the Covenant was, they could see the glowing fire of the presence of God. It was said that God would hover between the cherubim right over the Ark of the Covenant. That, that ceiling, that lid of the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim is often referred to as what? The bema seat. And that's where the high priest would pour the blood of the blood of the atonement Sacrifice once a year, a significant piece of Israel. It's, it's significant for the people of Israel. It's the presence of God, and does God ever lose? No. But the Israelites had lost to the Philistines, so what are they going to do? Let's get God on the battlefield. So they call. Let's get the, the Ark of the Covenant brought out to have the presence of God in the presence of, of His people's army so that we can defeat The Philistines. I mean, this logic makes perfect sense. If we have the Ark of the Covenant and we have the priests, therefore what? We have God. If we have the Ark of the Covenant, this beautiful gold box where God hangs out, and we have the priests, then how could we possibly lose? Because we have the presence and the power of God. So the Ark of the Covenant comes out onto the battlefield. And it says in 1 Samuel chapter 4 that when the people and the army of God saw the Ark of the Covenant, they shouted and yelled with so much happiness and joy that the earth itself shook it was like an earthquake there's only one other place on planet earth where that happens century league field when the seahawks are playing that's not right that's inappropriate but that's what it's like it 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 it, it so loud and so much ha- so much joy that they shouted And the the Bible describes an earthquake. In fact, it was so loud that the Philistines could hear it, and it says they were scared. They were frightened. They said not only are they excited and are they invigorated and are they coming alive again, but now they have the presence of God with the Ark of the Covenant. What will save them? Verse 3 of 1 Samuel chapter 4, just to read it. When the soldiers returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh. Shiloh is where the tabernacle was at this time in their history. So that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. Who was going to save them? What was going to save them? The ark of the covenant. They put their hopes and their faith in a box covered with gold and let out a thunderous war. The Philistines were frightened by this, but nonetheless, they said, we will fight them. And they said, uh, the Philistines said this, be men. Be men. The Philistines said, man it up, guys. It's time to go and die well. And they went and fought the, the Israel army, and they defeated them and, and gave them an even worse shellacking than they did in the previous battle. Worse than that, the two priests, Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, were killed in battle. It gets worse the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant. They, killed, they wiped out much of the army. They killed the high priest's sons. And not only that, they stole the Ark of the Covenant. It was a complete disaster. It was a disaster of, of unfathomable proportions. They have lost militarily. They have lost spiritually. Where did God go? Did God just lose We're gonna find out next week when we cover the next chapters. They took the Ark of the Covenant to the Temple of Dagon, one of the many, many gods that were worshipped in that area. And they put the Ark of the Covenant in a satanic temple. Can you believe it? What I mean, could could you imagine what was going on in their minds? God is lost. It's over. A Benjamite was tasked with the job of running back to the high priest, Eli, and giving him the news. Eli had heard the, the shout, and Eli had heard the battle, and he had seen the smoke, and his heart was failing with him, and, and the Benjamite came and said to Eli, your sons are dead. And Eli was like, meh. Really, I mean, he almost zero response in the Bible, and son being dead, he'd given up on these kids. And then he said, and the Ark of the Covenant has been taken. And Eli in shock fell out of his chair, probably didn't have a back on it, like the chairs you're sitting in, fell out of his chair and broke his neck and died. Phineas' wife was pregnant. She discovers that the Ark of the Covenant is taken. She discovers that her husband is dead, and Phineas' wife goes into labor while giving birth to her son, she dies. But before she dies, they tell her she's having a boy, and she says, name him Ichabod, because the glory of the Lord has departed. Nice name. The rest of his life, he's going to be known as the glory of the Lord has departed. He has no father, he has no mother, he has no grandfather, he will never serve as a priest. The glory of the Lord has departed. Look with me at the last verse of chapter 4, verse 22. She, the daughter of, or the wife of Phinehas she said the glory of the Lord the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured had the ark had the glory of God departed from Israel I do really think about that she has just described their golden box being taken and the priest dying and she's saying the glory of God has departed from Israel so the question is had it was she right she was sort of right The glory of God had departed from Israel, but it had nothing to do with their golden box, and it had nothing to do with the death of her husband and her father-in-law. She saw the glory of the Lord amongst the people of Israel as the Ark of the Covenant and the powerful and influential priesthood and the powerful and influential people of God in the Promised Land, and she said, without any of these things, the glory of God is gone. And she displays the same kind of spiritual blindness that is described of her father-in-law, Eli. It said his eyes were what? His dim, he, he could barely see anything. And the Bible there is not just talking about his eyes. Eli had lost sight of the spiritual realities that was going on in Israel, and the same was true for his son, and the same was true for his daughter-in-law. Their eyes were closed, and they they couldn't see that God was still working amongst the people of Israel, and the fact that their powerful priesthood and their Fancy box was stolen, had nothing to do with the work of God. They thought, we've lost our power, we've lost our influence, we've lost the people, we've lost everything that matters, so therefore God's glory has departed. The glory of God they had affixed to things that don't last. I'll ask an easy question just to wake you up again. Does the glory of God ever fade? Is there a way to do that? Can we tarnish God's glory? Is there a way for us to kind of make him less glory? No, that's not a possible thing. God is glorious. It's His very nature. There is not a way in which we could, by our own disobedience or our own uh, uh, being uninformed or uh, whatever it might be, we cannot diminish the glory of God. God's purposes are going to be done as long as we follow His plan, right? No, let let me end the sentence earlier. God's purposes are going to be what? Done. God gets his stuff done. God has a covenant with his people that through his people, he will bring a redeemer, and that redeemer will show what glory really looks like. The glory of God had not departed. It's just the fact that the, the spiritual leaders of this people had no wise to see the glory of God and what he was doing. When we put the glory of the work of God on things that do not last, when those things go away, all of a sudden we think God's glory is gone. This is happening in our culture all around us. Uh, Something has come out in a a research project that was done by Pew Research. Um, uh, Apparently, they haven't gotten rid of their pews yet. Um, I don't know. It's a Pew Research firm, and they had done some research over years and years on the religious uh, status of people in our country. And they're finding that in our country, we're seeing more and more people affiliating religiously as none, I read one article, it's called The Rise of the Nuns, and it's not an article about Catholic nuns. It's an article about those who affiliate with no religious affiliation, and this affiliation is, going, is skyrocketing. More and more people in our country are saying, I have no religious affiliation. Of course, the secular world wants to announce the death of the work of God in the world around us. That's not true. But what has happened, and I'm going to tell you what has happened, and I've only been wrong once today is so many of us were sold a bill of goods in regard to what God is doing. We were told that if you've got good religion, good old-time religion maybe, you do what God says, you mind your P's and Q's, you do what religious people do, you're going to experience blessing, you're going to experience influence, you're going to experience money, you're going to experience no problems in your family, uh, you're going to be a part of the political conversation in the country because religious influence is a major influence in our country in many ways. And all of a sudden, one by one over the course of the last 30 years, those things have fallen away, haven't they? All of a sudden, Christians lived longer than 10 days and they realized God doesn't always pour his blessing out in ways we would want. Anybody? Sometimes his blessing looks a lot like hurt. And all of a sudden, our influence is going away. And all of a sudden, our political power is going away. And all of a sudden, uh, what we thought uh, good Christians ought to look like. And, And all of a sudden, everything we said had to be true for God's glory to exist. And we say, it's all gone, so therefore, God must be dead. God lost in the United States. And it's because so many of us ascribed a false reality of what God's glory looks like. God's glory is found in the renewed heart of the individual who is lost in their sin and needs redemption through Jesus Christ. Amen? And that is the glory of God. Jesus came here to save dead people. And the glory of God is found in dead people being raised from the dead. The glory of God is found in His people being so motivated to see the glory of God in redemption that we spend the balance of our lives hoping and praying we could be a part of that conversation with somebody. That's the glory of God, and it is not dead. It's just many of us punched out of the job a long time ago. Jesus died to raise people who were dead in their sins that they might live in the righteousness that he has to offer. And that is where the glory of God is found. Go and make disciples. The people of Israel thought that they could only be the people of God if the ark was in their presence, and God took it away, and all of a sudden they had to deal with that reality. Are we still the people of God? What must be in your mind in order for things to be right the way God wants them? What must be? I'll list a couple of things for you. I can't decide if, how rude I want to be. I'm going to try not to be rude. Somebody's giving me permission to be rude. I don't want to be rude. Uh, sometimes it's in the things that we prefer about how we gather as a body of believers. We all have preferences. Of course we do. Do we? Don't we? I like steak relatively rare. I like heat to be somewhere in the room of the steak when it's being prepared. You know, I think giving the steak blood transfusion is a little over the top, but if we do, we can, right? Now, some of you, though, like your steak uh, basically brought out as a piece of charcoal, right? You want it, you want it to come out and you say, is that the charcoal or was that the steak on the grill? And to each his own, and you're okay. You're f- I'm fine with you being wrong on that. But we all have things we like and don't like. We? we all have different kinds of music we like. Y'all have different kinds of decor that we like. We all have different views on political persuasions and political views and issues. We can fall easily and quickly into the trap that the Israelites fall, fell into. Remember back when we had the ark? Man, those days were good. Here's something about the good old days we need to remember we only remember the good parts. If you really sit and think about good old days, there were some things you didn't like back then either, right? And this is true for all of us, regardless of where we're at in the course of our life. We establish in our mind, here's what must be if God is working here. And if we're going to say what must be, it had better come from the Bible. And God did not need an Ark of the Covenant to do his work among the people of Israel. Could you imagine what would happen to somebody if they went to the people of Israel and said, God can work through you without the Ark of the Covenant? What would happen to that person? Away from us, you evildoer. Get behind me, Satan, or something like that. We establish in our minds, these are the things that must be for me to say God is working in a place or in a culture or in a time. And for the people of Israel, they wanted power and influence and religious respectability. And God did not speak to the high and mighty religious respectability of their time. God was silent when they needed him because they weren't actually seeking him. They were seeking his power to get what they wanted. The ark. Was gone and the glory had departed. But only because they were blind to see what God was doing. The high and mighty powerful religious elite. Were seeking the Lord on their own terms. And God was silent. Let's go back to. 1 Samuel chapter 3. So if God wasn't too excited about speaking to the religious high and mighty and the influential and the power to accomplish their purposes. Where is God speaking? Title of the message, God speaks to the lowly. Here you've got little boy. The Bible describes Samuel as a boy sleeping, likely on the floor near the Ark of the Covenant. Three times God comes to Samuel. And why does the Bible say Samuel doesn't understand who is speaking? Why is it? The Bible says quite clearly because Samuel didn't know the Lord. They'd never been introduced properly. And so he hears this voice. He's, he assumes it's old man Eli. Why didn't Eli come to him? Because Eli's an old guy, can't see past his nose. And he's a big fella. If Eli needs something, he rings his bell and Samuel comes running. So three times Samuel hears Eli and three times, or Samuel hears the Lord and three times uh, he goes to Eli because he has never been properly introduced to the Lord. It's unbelievable think of Samuel. He doesn't know the Lord. And Eli, with all of his... Uh, spiritual blindness, at least is smart enough to figure out that Samuel is hearing from God. What must that have been like for Eli? An old man serving faithfully-ish. And now God shows up in the temple finally. Because the Bible describes these times as saying, in those days the word of the Lord was rare. And but God finally shows up at the tabernacle, the temple as it's described, and God is finally going to give a word, and what does he say to Eli? Zilcho is the theological term. He comes to the little boy, Samuel, who is described in the scripture as, he doesn't even know the Lord, never been introduced. And I think the word of Samuel, properly spoken, he spoke it from his heart, although the words had been given to him from Eli is this, Samuel, Samuel, the Lord said to him, speak, your servant is listening. Speak. Speak. Your servant is listening. And what did Sam, what did the Lord tell Samuel? He said, I am going to judge Eli in his house. It's about to happen. His sons are going to die. Eli is going to die. The priesthood is removed from their family. The voice of judgment and prophecy came to Samuel in that moment, and it was the voice of God, and it was the word of God. Samuel, chosen by God, not of his own merit, but just because God speaks to the lowly, was given the prophecy which he communicated to Eli The next morning was the glory of God gone in Israel remember Phineas wife on her deathbed says the glory of God is gone in Israel was it gone no he was speaking to Samuel the glory of God was as present as ever it's just the religious elite didn't have time to see the word he was speaking to the lowly Samuel the glory of God was present because God was still speaking to his people The glory of God was present for those who would have the faith to hear it and to see that God was finally speaking again to his his people. The glory of God for Eli and his family was this, God is glorified in providing me the things I think I need. I know you would never pray that, that seems a little bit cynical. God is glorified when he finally figures out that what I'm asking for is what he ought to provide. God is glorified when he gives me whatever it is. And, and some of the things we're praying for are really significant and important. It's not to say they aren't important, but what we say, God is glorified on whose terms? My terms. God is glorified when he finally figures out that I'm the right one here. I know you would never say that out loud, so I say it for you. But we think it, don't we? God, oh, wouldn't it be so glorified? God, I would bring you so much glory if you would give me what I want here. I know... We've prayed this prayer, prayer, haven't we? God, I promise you, if you give me this, I'll tell everybody you did it. I mean, I'll let them know I prayed for it, obviously. I'll make sure they know that. but God, you'll be glorified when you, when you finally see things my way. How did Samuel demonstrate the glory of God? It's on your verse card, and I want us to remember this. I think this is critically important: Speak. I'm listening. God is glorified when in that humility we finally get to that place, we sing that song, "A good, good father, and we say he knows what we want before we ask. Maybe every now and then in the time we're spending before him in prayer, we can just say, you know what? God, you know what's on my mind. So you can handle that as you see fit. But God, I'm listening. I'm listening. Can you, God, be glorified by telling me what I need to hear. God, be glorified by showing me in your word the truth of what's going on in my heart. What are the things in my life that need to die right now? God, you can handle that other business. You know all about it. God, I'm listening. The glory of God is found when the lowly come before him. What, is, what does it say in Matthew chapter 5? The meek will inherit the earth. The humble and the meek come before the Lord and say, God, I need you. I, do what you got to do. God speaks. To the lowly. God is glorified when his word is is humbly obeyed as we say, God, what do you want to do here? God, speak to my heart. I'm done telling you what you need to do. It says this in verse 19 of 1 Samuel chapter 3, the Lord was with Samuel, he grew up and he let none of his words fall to the ground. That means everything he said, the people were eating it up because the word of God had been so absent for so long that everything he spoke, they just wanted to hear more. They say, God, speak to us. And the Lord continued to appear in Shiloh. Not to Eli, not to Phineas, not to Herb, or Ferb. Wait, what's the other one? Phineas and Hophni. Hophni. Okay, now the other one's a cartoon. Some of you got it. I was just seeing who was watching cartoons. All right. It wasn't showing up to those guys. Did any of them take the time to go see Samuel and his ratty once a year outfit by the ark? Hey, what'd God have to say today? It doesn't, why not? Those are too high and mighty, too pious in their religiosity. God wouldn't speak to that guy. I mean, Samuel, bring me my uh, food for the morning. There there was no sense of God. Samuel, did God show up again today? They had no, no sense of urgency for the glory of God being revealed in his word. And Samuel's word came to all of Israel. The glory of God had not departed because the word of the Lord had come to Samuel. But it was completely lost on those who were too arrogant to see it. God speaks. To the lowly i just want to touch on one one other thing over on the other side of your end of your bible let's uh you don't have to turn there i'm going to read hebrews chapter 11. hebrews chapter 1 verse 1. And this is what it says in the past god spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways would that include samuel yeah samuel's a, a prophet In the past, the author of Hebrews says, in reference to the Older Testament, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers, the Jewish people, through prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful Word. John, The Gospel of John begins, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is described as the revelation of God, the uh, full disclosure of who God is to the world around us. The Word of God revealed in flesh. And we say, well, where is the Word of the Lord today? Is, is He here? Can we, we know Him? And the fact is, yes, Jesus came. The glory of God has not departed because Jesus hasn't given up yet. The glory of God has not departed. His Holy Spirit resides in every believer. And his word is disclosed and his word is made known. The world around us may be going crazy. But the reality is is the glory of God has not departed because Jesus does not lose. Some of those things that we thought were signs of the glory of God have faded into the past. But Jesus hasn't given up ground yet. The Holy Spirit is not only sort of partially in his believers now, because he's hedging his bets in case things go sideways on him. The glory of God is just as present today as the day that the Holy Spirit descended on the disciples at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It's only because we have uh, failed to have eyes to see the work of God by his Spirit in our own heart. Look with me at John chapter 10. I want to put us in the shoes of Samuel as we look at John chapter 10, a passage of scripture you're probably very familiar with, and I apologize, I'm going to read a bit. This is Jesus speaking in John chapter 10. I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Remember Samuel when God first spoke? The Bible, he, he didn't know his voice. And Jesus here is saying the same thing. Listen, when I call to you, those who are mine will know my voice, and they will follow me. They will never follow a stranger. In fact, they're going to run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep, Jesus says. All who come before me were thieves and robbers. But the sheep didn't listen to them. And he's talking about the religious leaders of that time. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out, and he will find pasture. The thief, he only comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you might have life. And to have it fully. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd uh, who owns the sheep. So he, he sees the wolf coming and he runs away. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. What does he say? I lay down my life. For the sheep, I have other sheep, he's referring to us, coming, uh, non-Jews, coming to, to know him later on. I must bring them on also, they too will listen to my voice, and they shall be one flock, one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes my life. I lay it down and I take it up, and the father loves me because I obey him. Jesus, the good shepherd, he calls us and and we hear his voice and we know him because the spirit resides in us and he lays down his life for the sheep and that's the glory of the presence of God. The shepherd makes a way for us to know the father by laying his life down so that we might have the Holy Spirit in us so when he speaks both, both through his word and when we're in prayer, when he speaks to us, we know his voice. And he is glorified in that, that, that lowly, humble people in brokenness and fear and, and doubt would come to him and, and see the glory of the Lord revealed as he speaks and makes himself known. I tell you the truth, he says. My sheep, listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hands. Jesus dies for his sheep and he gives us eternal life. He provides to us an an everlasting inheritance with Him and the Father and there is no possibility for that to be removed. We receive from Him forgiveness of sins because of His death when we trust Him and that can never be taken away. It's only the fact that we have undervalued the glory of that that we look for so many other false glories in this life. And we get so bound up in anxiety when things aren't going the way we think they ought to be going either in our church or in our community or in our nation. We get so wound up, and we forget. You know, he did give us eternal life. We have undervalued the glory of God in providing eternal life for us forever. You know, a million years from now, when we're in heaven doing whatever we do. Probably sitting on clouds playing harps. Oh, heaven forbid. Please no. That's not it. We'll cover that in another sermon. Are we going to be that concerned about the things we're worried about over the next six months? I mean, do you think we're going to be really that riled up over that? Whatever it is for you. I mean, this is what Jesus is wanting us to do, is to expand our perspective from this little short 80-year lifespan, lifespan we have and look into eternity and say, why do we get so wound up? The glory of God has departed. And our eyes are blind to the fact that God has made himself known to us by his Son and by his word. God speaks to the lowly. And unfortunately, I think it's a truism if it's not actually true. The high and mighty, the self important the religious elite are blind to what God is doing. And we have to be careful to know that our hearts are being lowed, made low in the spirit, that we might hear the word of the Lord. Let me make two distinctions as we think about hearing the word of the Lord. A distinction I didn't make up comes from another author, but I think it's relevant to what I'm trying to say here. Religion says this. God, I think he's over there somewhere, probably in this side. Sorry, guys. God is over here. I got all kinds of problems. Got health problems, got money problems, got family problems, relational problems. We're not even talking about politics yet we got all kinds of problems. So what I need to do, because God's over there, probably in a a cloud. Let's just assume cloud or smoke. Uh, He's probably mad. I mean, we just have to assume he's really ticked off about something. Uh, So God is over there. He's ticked off. And I need to figure out what I can do here so that guy over there will fix all these problems out here. That's religion. God, i got to activate you somehow by maybe being good, being well-behaved, maybe by using polite words. Uh, giving money, uh, volunteering time, I don't know what to buy. I've got to activate that guy to fix all of these problems that I perceive. I've got problems here in my job, problems here in my family, problems here in my country. And I get frustrated when I do all the things I know he's into. Because obviously I know everything God's into because of my vast intellect. I do all these things God's into and it drives me nuts when he won't do the things I know he's supposed to do. Anybody ever felt that way before? Of course, we're humans. This is what Israel was doing. God, we got the ark, give us victory. So religion says, I do all the right things so I can get the big smoking angry God to do all the right things for me out here. Fix my life, and then when God finally gets on board, that I'm doing all the things necessary for him to see things my way, we can finally have a good relationship and the glory of God will descend upon us. The gospel sees things a little bit differently than religion. The truth of what Jesus did on the cross says the problems out here are really, really small in comparison with the problem in here. The problems I have out here are significant and they're powerful and they feel, I can feel them. But the reality of what the Bible says is most of the problems I'm facing have to do with my own heart. I don't need God to figure out, God, how to get him to take care of my enemies. I need God to lovingly come in and give me something new, as the Bible describes as a circumcised heart, a heart that is dedicated to him, that the very desires of my inmost being would be God's desires. And the Bible tells us that the glory of God is revealed when he invades a human and changes them, and their dead heart becomes a live heart, and the motivations of our heart begin to look a lot like the motivations of God. The gospel says the problem is in me, not out there. The stuff that really matters that God needs to do to bring him glory in your life is not the stuff you see, it's the stuff that goes on inside of you every single day. The glory of God has not departed. We just want the glory of God to show up everywhere else except in our own heart. The elders of the people of Israel said bring the ark so we can get the ark to save us. Samuel understood the work of God and the glory of God and said God I'm listening. God I'm listening. I want you in the quietness of your own heart as you're thinking about these things again the main thing I want you to take away today is God speaks to the lowly. And I want you maybe in sensitivity what the spirit is saying to you we have these two ways we can approach god god i'm going to do everything i can so that you can fix all my issues or god i'm listening what what is the description of our of your relationship with god which one of those matches up with your experience is it what are all the, what are all the do's and don'ts i need to line up so god will bless me Or is it, God, I'm listening. What do you got? I know day in and day out, that's going to shift back and forth. But I want you to think about this. God's glory hasn't departed. It wants to find its place in your heart. God's glory wants to move in on your heart and transform your rebellious heart into an obedient heart. Not so that you do the right things. Worse than that, that you want to do the right things. A heart dedicated to him. God speaks to the lowly, where he, by the conviction of his Holy Spirit, humbles us, and we say, God, your way, but not my way. I'm listening. We can finally approach our Bible reading the mornings differently. Instead of reading it to find out what's wrong with our wives and our husbands, we could read it to find out what God is saying to our heart. Instead of reading it to find out what's wrong with politician A or B, we can read it and say, God, I am listening instead of reading it so we can finally tell so-and-so at the church that I'm right on that issue and they're wrong on that issue. God, I'm listening. Speak, and may you be glorified by changing, not them, not over there, not all this stuff outside of me. God, have glory in changing my lowly heart. That's not a small thing for God. It's a small thing in our minds. God, there's bigger fish to fry than my little heart. And God says, no, my glory is most profoundly seen in the Son of God redeeming your heart. There will be no greater glory in this life. There will not be a bigger thing for him to do in you than redeeming your heart today.